hi. <laughs> Maybe you didn't see me, the light was still coming on. Good morning, Marcel. How are you? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a quiet one, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. That is what I hope the word does to our souls this morning. As, uh, as Dawson alluded to, that we are wrapping up our study of Habakkuk. And I'm not sure if we told you where we're going next, but usually we go to a, a, the next book of the Bible, which is, or a next book of the Bible, which is what we're going to do. We have like a little mini series in between there, but we're going to do things differently. We're just going to go straight to the next book of the Bible, which is going to be the Acts of the Apostles, or more appropriately, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be in there for about two to maybe two and a half years. So like I told the first service, it's probably the best time to buy, not rent. We're going to be there for a while, two and a half years. But until we get there, Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, as we close our study today. I was at a conference recently. There was a few believers there, a lot of believers there actually, and uh, as you do at conferences where people gather together and people are about to depart and travel, uh, somebody prayed over the, the convention, traveling mercies and protection. I was talking to a guy afterwards as we were parting ways, and uh, it came up in conversation about like, God's protection over our life. And if you look throughout Scripture, God doesn't necessarily guarantee us physical safety all the time. All you have to do is look at, well, what we're going through in Habakkuk right now or the life of the disciples. So I asked the question, I posited to him, what if God doesn't protect us in our traveling mercies as we go? What if he doesn't keep us safe? And he asked, well, why wouldn't he? And I said, that's beside the point. Is God worthy of our worship? even if he doesn't protect us from physical harm. And he paused for a moment, and he responded this way. He's like, yes, but I still wish he would. Yes, he's worthy of worship, but I wish he would protect us. And I bet, had I been able to press him a little bit, he'd admit that if God didn't protect us, he must have had a good reason, something that goes beyond our understanding, at least until eternity. And I love that short conversation because it... it that, that tacit, that blunt, yes, but, captures a lot of what we've been seeing in Habakkuk's dialogue with God this entire time. Yes, you are Lord, you are God, you are my holy one, Habakkuk calls him, you're my rock. But how long, oh Lord? The central question of all Habakkuk orbits that. How long? O oh Lord, as the Chaldeans barrel down, bringing destruction with them to Judea, to the Hebrews. Impressed by God, pressed by God, not impressed, but pressed by God, Habakkuk admits that God must have a good reason for raising up Chaldea to judge the nation of Judah. And so we've seen in the text how he was left with really only two things. First, he says, well, Trust God, which means the righteous shall live by faith, we saw in Habakkuk 2.4. And in that living by faith, he remembers that God is able and he is good and he is faithful to his promises. The second part, though, is, well, if we do remember God, if we are going to agree with Habakkuk that the righteous live by faith, and despite our circumstances, to live in faith and to remember who God is, how do we do that? 
Is God worthy of worship despite protection? Is he worthy of worship even in the midst of our suffering? That's the final question that Habakkuk answers as he closes his book, as he looks ahead to what is coming, Chaldea barreling down to conquer them. But more than that, I believe, what Habakkuk is looking past those events into the horizon of future, that God's promises for eternal redemption are true because, he says, God is my salvation. So read with me verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Well, that's the bad news. The future looks terribly bleak for the Hebrews. Habakkuk is describing complete agricultural collapse, which is a problem if you are an agricultural society. It's going to mean the collapse of Judea's government. It's going to destroy Judea's economy. It's going to wreck Judea's supply chain. It's going to invite famine and suffering and death. That much is obvious. But I think what's less obvious is why didn't Habakkuk just say that? Why didn't he just say, Though God, our economy is going to collapse. Though God, we're going to face famine. Though God, we're going to experience suffering. Why did he list out these specific things? There has to be a reason, and there is. So what I want to do this morning is really consider the five elements or items or lists that, that or elements or items that Habakkuk lists here in verse 17 to really get to the meat of what he's trying to communicate. I'm a visual person, so I've compiled the list with pictures I found on the internet. The first, he says, there's going to be blossomless fig trees. Second, he said, there's going to be fruitless vines. In other words, there's not going to be any grapes. Then there's olives, food in the field, so your wheat and barley aren't going to be there. Your flocks are going to be cut off from the fold, so there's not going to be any sheep or goats or cattle or bulls. And then Finally, there's not going to be any herd in the stalls, which means no camel and donkeys. Well, so what? Why, why does this matter? Let's walk through them one at a time. What this means at a very basic level for the Hebrews first, with no more figs is, well, there's no more nutritious snacks for you. It was a luxury, not a necessity in ancient Judea. So it's not a big deal, but no more snacks. Then... God says, or then Habakkuk says, there's not going to be any fruit of the vine, which means no grapes. So these were plentiful. They were a nutritious part of the diet, but they're also used for wine. Now, it's not a huge deal to forfeit wine until you consider the fact that this is a problem for health and safety. Because in the ancient world, wine was a safe alternative to unsafe sources of drinking water. But then things get worse. Habakkuk says there's not going to be any more olives and there's not going to be any more food from the field. So first, obviously, there's no more cereal grains, which means no more bread and no more food for livestock in the winter. And then second, also a little obvious, is that there's no more olives to eat, but that's not the only reason the Hebrews grew olives. They also grew them to press them for oil. And then they used that oil for soaps, for cooking, and for lamplight. 
Then Habakkuk says it gets worse. The flocks are going to be cut off from the fold. So there's not going to be any more flock animals like sheep or goats or cattle, which means there's not going to be meat to eat. And there's not going to be dairy products to consume. And then finally, he says there's not going to be herd in the stalls, which at first doesn't seem terribly important because who eats donkey and camel? But what were donkeys and camels used for in the ancient world? Transportation. So what Habakkuk is saying is, even if you want to escape the coming famine and the coming conquest of Chaldea over Judea, you can't. You're going to want to be tempted, like your ancestors, Abraham and Jacob, to flee from famine to Egypt, but you're not going to have a car in the garage to do so. You're stuck in your villages. Let's reread that verse so we can feel the heaviness growing. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the, then the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Luxury is vanishing. Food disappearing. The economy collapsing. Disaster is coming. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. You can't even escape it. That's what Habakkuk is saying. Okay, so let's reflect on this for a moment. Like, what would our response be? What would your next words be? What would we suppose Habakkuk would say? Wouldn't your next words be, though disaster is coming, Lord, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you stop all of this from happening? But Habakkuk has already been there, hasn't he? Earlier in chapter one, verse three, says, why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention. Is it because you want to do something about it, but you can't? Or because you can do something about it, but you don't want to? Or because you can't do something, and even if you could, you wouldn't do it anyway? No, we've already been here. Habakkuk has accepted that, can, that God can and wants to do something. And so that led Habakkuk to, write, to ask the right question, which was, how long? How long will this disaster occur? And God gave him an answer. I, it, it will take as long as necessary for me to sanctify my people through Chaldea. But then that raised a second question we've seen in the text, one that we might ask in our suffering. Though disaster is coming, Lord, why would you let it come in the first place? And again, Habakkuk's already been there. And he said earlier in the text, in chapter 1, verse 13, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And Habakkuk received God's answer. And Habakkuk was told by God, look, it's going to look like Chaldea is getting away with it, but woe to them, woe to them, woe to them. They are going to succumb to their own conquest. They're going to be punished as it were, by their own bloodlust. Now, Habakkuk may not understand fully what God is doing, but if you remember, he was left with one of two choices. He could have rejected God's explanation out of pride, or he could have received it out of humility and faith, and that's exactly what he did. And in receiving it in humility, he was reminded of who God is. God is able, he's all-powerful, mighty to save, even in the midst of disaster. 
that God is good, that God wants to save, his will is always ultimately bent towards good, and that God is faithful, that if he promised his people redemption one day, despite the circumstances, he's going to bring that to completion. And so Habakkuk concluded, the righteous shall live by faith. And so here at the very end of the text, we see that the complaints we would imagine would be present on Habakkuk's tongue are actually absent. Though the fields aren't producing, though there's no more olives, though there's no more figs, though there's no more food, everything is going to be a disaster. You would think Habakkuk would just return to the whys and the how comes, but instead of complaint, in Habakkuk's mouth, there is the most unexpected thing, which is this, praise. Even though disaster is coming, I will rejoice. I want to take this whole flow of Habakkuk in together. I've got a graphic here that expands on one we looked at a couple of weeks ago to show us exactly where we've been. We are now at the very end of the book. We're in receiving God's answer by faith, reminding that God is able and good and faithful. Instead of going all the way back to the beginning to question God, he now praises God, I will rejoice. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off in the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, verse 18 says. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Are you ready for Habakkuk's most challenging question for us yet? Do you allow your circumstances to dictate the quality and quantity of your worship? Do you allow your circumstances in life to rob you of the joy of God, your salvation. Well, you could hear the objection. Well, what salvation? Isn't Judah about to be destroyed? No, you're missing the point. Judea is about to be sanctified. Here's a really big difference. Yes, they're being sanctified through suffering, turmoil, darkness, and pain, but God is using all of those things for his good and for his glory. It's summarized in a principle that's echoed all throughout the Bible and perhaps most consolidated in the Apostle Paul's words for us in Romans 8:28. We know it well. We know that for those who love God, all things work together. Every conquest of Chaldea over Judea, every famine, every economic disaster, all things, yes, it means that, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So the question isn't do we understand that, it's do we believe it? Do we receive it? If so, you are tasting something from scripture that is so bitter to the world and yet so sweet to heaven. And in tasting that, your voice rejoices in God even 
in your trials and in your suffering. Because if you are tracking with Habakkuk so far, and you agree, yes, God deserves to be praised, and we ought to rejoice him in salvation, despite even the worst circumstances, we're ready for the last thing that Habakkuk has for us. Well, then how? How is it that someone who places their faith in God despite circumstances can praise him in the valleys? How, how can we praise God in the darkness? How do we praise God laying on tear-soaked pillows? How do we, in, in parts of the world where our brothers and sisters are persecuted, how do we praise God in dark, damp prisons separated from family, not knowing when we're gonna see anybody ever again? How do we praise God? The answer, I think, is found in returning again to verse 17 and seeing something I think is incredible and in, in hidden right before our very eyes. In this list of things that God is taking away, we actually find, we, we begin to see the reasons for why we ought to, or how we ought to, to praise God even in suffering. So we're gonna get back to verse 17, but before that, we need to jog our memory a little bit about the history of the Hebrew people. Like, who are they, and why were they in Judea to begin with? Really short. Remember, the Hebrew people began where all people began, the garden. God created a very good creation. We rebelled against him in Adam, and we fell. And what was the first thing we did after we fell? We saw our nakedness, and then we fashioned together fig leaves, remember that, and we hid ourselves. Well, God promised Eve that he was gonna crush the head of the servant through her descendant. It was gonna be through a family from a man he picked named Abraham. Abraham was promised that he's gonna have all these descendants and they did. Famine hit, his descendants end up in Egypt where they get enslaved. God's not gonna have it. He hears their cries, he calls them out for two reasons, that God may be served by them and that God may be worshiped by them and he equips them with everything they need to do that. And if you were here for our study in Exodus, you saw the, the intricate details in which God went through in describing the means and the methods of worship. Here's how you're gonna build the tabernacle. Here's how you're gonna build the holy place and the holy of holies. And here's what you're gonna put in it. And here's what you're gonna do. And here's how you're gonna do it. And here's the sacrifices. And here's the specific animals and the types of grains that you're going to do. And here's the specific days on your calendar that you're going to celebrate me. And here's the reason why on this day and this day and this day, you celebrate me for that, that, and that reason. Remember all that? So with that in mind, hopefully all this jogging our memory here, let's read verse 17 again and watch as it's telling us a story. If you're looking for it, you'll see it. Telling us a story of how we celebrate God in suffering. It's very counterintuitive. It's by letting go. Verse 17, let's read it again. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. Okay, we are going to consider the symbolism of each of those items, what they would have meant to, he to the Hebrews at this time. First, though the fig tree should not blossom. Again, when's the first time we see figs in the Bible? It's immediately after the fall. 
When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they ate fruit from the tree that was in the midst of the garden, and quickly they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths to hide their shame. In fact, it's the only kind of tree that we know existed in the garden. We don't have names for the other trees. So, if God in Habakkuk's day is preventing the fig tree from blossoming, Habakkuk is telling the people, you're not gonna be able to hide your sin from God anymore. There's no sense in you trying to cover your sin. You're not gonna be able to any longer. That begs a question from the Hebrews' perspective. Well, then if we can't hide our sin, maybe we've gotta make it up to God. Maybe if we do good works and we impress God, like if we repent, like we really mean it this time, we really repent and we straighten up and we do all these good works, he'll have to call off the Chaldean conquest, right? We'll be safe then? The verse continues, though there be no fruit on the vines. Well, what does a vine and its fruit symbolize? Typically in scripture, it symbolizes good works produced for the vintner. The vine here being Israel, the good works here being grapes, and the vintner being God. Jesus used this imagery a lot in the gospels, right? Parables in the vineyards. So if there is no fruit of the vines, Habakkuk is saying, look, you're not gonna be able to produce good works that impress God. You're not gonna be able to curry favor with God to get you out of this disaster. But wait, they'd say, what about the sacrificial system at our temple? Like God's obligated to forgive us if we do that correctly, am I right? So if we can really impress God through our temple sacrifices and our religious worship, then we'll have to call off Chaldea. But listen to what Habakkuk says. Though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold. Those three things directly undercut is, uh, the Hebrews' ability to participate in temple worship. Why? Well, first, if the Hebrews lose olives, it means they can't make oil. And if they can't make oil, they can't anoint their priests. And if they can't make oil, and this is perhaps more important, they no longer have oil for fuel to light their lamps in the temple. Remember, light in the temple is supposed to be ongoing all the time. They were never supposed to allow at least one lamp from burning out. Year after year, generation after generation, they had at least one lamp going in the temple. And now all of a sudden, Habakkuk's saying, you're not gonna have that fuel anymore. Can you imagine? Like, Travel back in time for just a minute. You are a little boy. You're a little Hebrew boy. You want to be a priest when you grow up. You tell your parents they're super proud of you. You go to school, and then you go to Hebrew theology school. I don't know where they went. And you, you learned all the, 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 the stuff for the temple, and then you join this elite group of the priests, and they're like, hey, we want you to be the lamp guy. And you're like, yes, I've always wanted to be the lamp guy. And so month after month, year after year, you would go to the the, the bucket to get the oil and you would fill up the lamp and every single day you would be reminded by that flame that God's presence is with Israel. But then little by little, 
the oil starts to go away. And you ask, like, are we getting any more oil? No, there's no more fruit on the olive tree. And the fuel gets lower and lower and lower until one day you can't get any more oil. And you walk over to the lamp and watch as it flickers out and you are standing in complete darkness in the temple. That's the seriousness of what Habakkuk is talking about. Then the Hebrews are going to lose their fields, which means they can't participate, which means they can't harvest grains, so they can't make unleavened bread. They can't celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Breads. They can't offer grain sacrifices, which, by the way, is a symbol of their devotion to God, but Habakkuk opened up with, hey, your people are apparently not devoted to you anymore. And then third, the Hebrews will lose their flocks, which means they can't sacrifice livestock. So there is no more burnt offering of individual sins. There's no more uh, universal offering for the nation's sin on Yom Kippur or Day of Atonement. And perhaps worst of all, there's no more Passover to remember how God redeemed his people out of Egypt to begin with. What religious works are you going to do? You can't do any. All of your means are being taken away. And if any Hebrew guy got the idea that he could just run home, pack up his family, and flee to Egypt, well, you can't. Though there be no herd in the stalls. You have no donkeys. You have no camels. You have no transportation out of this. It's a terrifying reality that Habakkuk is ending his letter with. But actually, it's good news. How? Listen to this. Because there's nothing left that the Hebrews can do about their sin but to allow God to sanctify them. There's not a single thing left that the Hebrews can do about their sin but to allow God to sanctify them. They can't hide their sin anymore. They can't be good people. They can't do religious works. They can't even leave. The only thing they can do is to receive God's sanctification through suffering. And this is an incredible parable for us all today. How many of us, like the Hebrews, have in their life turned away from God? The answer is 100% of us. You're in good company. How many of us, to borrow Habakkuk's language, engaged in iniquity or in wrongdoing or delighted in injustice? Maybe not literally, but certainly we've done so emotionally or socially or relationally. How many of us have, through commission or omission, doing what we shouldn't have done or not doing what we should have done, destroyed a friend's emotions or violated a family member's trust or collapsed a friendship or a relationship or a partnership all because of our selfishness and our pride and our sin? And then when it came time for God to reproof us, when it came time for our repentance, we ran from God and we hid. But then God said, no, no more hiding. I'm gonna work on you this time, though the fig tree should not blossom. This time, you're not hiding your sin behind fig leaves any longer. So then what do we do? We start bargaining with God. All right, Lord, you caught me. I'll stop. <laughs> I promise, no more. 
I'm gonna straighten up, I'm gonna do good works, I'm gonna pay it back to you. You try to curry God's favor, but you can tell everything you're doing, he's not accepting. Because your guilt persists and your shame endures. And you know it deeply, you can't do enough to cover your sin. There's not enough good works for you to do to make it up to God, though there be no fruit on the vines. And then so we start to grow anxious, right? Like, okay, time out. I hear you, God. It's serious. You're super serious this time. Okay, I'll tell you what. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to set my alarm on my phone three times a day. I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to go to church, not that church, not the one I don't like. I want to go to the one I really like. I'm going to seriously get right with you. But that doesn't work either. It's almost like he's indifferent to these sacrifices that you're trying to make to him because somehow your sin weighs heavier and, and your guilt is more obvious. It's everywhere you see. You, you can't do the religious stuff, the spiritual stuff to impress God, though the olive fail and the fields yield no food and the flock be cut off from the fold. So what do we do? We panic, we run. We ghost our Christian friends and family. We embrace the world until we realize, like the psalmist did thousands of years ago, the Holy Spirit is everywhere you run. You cannot ghost the Holy Ghost. He's everywhere, right? Psalm 139, seven, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? That's a rhetorical question. You can't, there is nowhere. He haunts us in the righteous, good sense of that word. He haunts us. The Holy Spirit haunts you in the club and in the bar and in the relationship, in the distraction, in the substance abuse, in the new crowd, in the late hours, in the travel, in the isolation, no matter where you go, no matter who you're with, the Holy Spirit is there pressing your heart into the heart of Christ. Allowing the consequences of our sin to pull us deeper and grind us thinner and weaken us further and push us farther and spiritually exhaust us in sorrow and shame and remorse and guilt until we finally give up because you could never run from God in the first place, though there be no herd in the stalls. But what's left at that point? What's left to do? Habakkuk gives us the answer, verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Why? Why in the world would the Hebrews ever rejoice when they've had nothing left, when they've been conquered by Chaldea? That's what they're rejoicing about? Chaldea being sent to judge the Hebrews? Yes, exactly, because it means God still loves his people. And he's not going to sit idly by and let them die as a nation in their sin. And it means that there's nothing that they can do to earn God's love or favor. They can't hide their sins and deceive God as if he was a fool. They can't do the right things. They can't worship the right way. They can't even run away. And it's the same for us. Why would we ever rejoice when our sin has left us with nothing? Because God allows hardship in your life to sanctify you? Yes, exactly. And it means that God loves you. 
And there's absolutely nothing you could do to earn that love. There's no hiding your sin from him and from others any longer. There's no doing good works to make it up to God. There's no amount of worship. There's no amount of going through the motions. There's no fleeing this time. God has something better for you. And there's absolutely nothing you can do but to just receive the mercy and grace of God's love and forgiveness. There's nothing you can do but to repent, to let go of the world, to be embraced by your Father who has waited so long for you to return from that faraway land as his beloved prodigal son or daughter. He loves you beyond your comprehension. So stop running. You can't. There aren't donkeys or camels in the stalls. You don't have a car in the garage. God loves you. Repent from your sin. Turn to Christ. He's the one that's been pursuing you this whole time that you can't get away from because he left the other 99 to go for you, the one that wandered away. Embrace him. Be embraced by him. And then with Habakkuk's shout, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will take joy in Jesus. Because that is ultimately, at the end of the day, what it means to take joy in the God of my salvation. That's what Jesus' name means. God is my salvation, or salvation belongs to God. And early Christians rightly saw this in the text. When Habakkuk longed to see God's redemption, the early Christians said they were seeing Christ, and yet he was seeing Christ through a mirror dimly. But the Lord Jesus, whose name means God saves or God's salvation, is what we take our joy in. It's what, in a mysterious way, Habakkuk was taking his joy in, even if he didn't understand it fully. In fact, the ancient Christians, when it came time to translate this passage from Hebrew into Latin, they translated it this way, exultable in Deu Jesu Mio, which means I will exalt in my God, Jesus. Now, as a translation, that's a bit extra, but the point still stands. This passage, in the end, is about Jesus. Do you see him there? Though the fig tree should not blossom, nevertheless, Christ enables us to share in the tree of life. We don't hide our sin from him. We exchange our sin for his righteousness by faith alone. Though there be no fruit on the vines, nevertheless, Christ is the vine in whom we abide. And by drawing from life and grace, we produce fruit not to curry God's love or favor, but to receive it as a life-giving through his son. Though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no fruit and the flock be cut off from the fold, nevertheless, Christ is the light of the world who offers light in this darkness. He is the bread of life who feeds us in a world starved of holiness. And he is the lamb of God laid down his life for us so that God would raise us up to eternal life. And though there be no herd in the stalls, nevertheless, Christ negates the need to escape God's judgment anyway. In him, we are brought through God's judgment. We see it, if you continue with the Hebrew story in the Old Testament after Habakkuk's time, that there is a remnant of people that God saves. 
But in Christ, we are brought through God's judgment, pleading for and clinging to Christ's righteousness. The promise of God's salvation through Christ is what Habakkuk had rejoice, the, the reason to rejoice about, to take joy in the light amid a terrible situation. And that is how we rejoice in the midst of suffering and sorrow. The world can take everything from you except for this, the promises of God. The world cannot take those away from you. Impossible. I'm not telling you that. The word of God does. So remember those promises. And by remembering those promises, it will lead you to a place of rejoicing. And this is exactly or precisely what Habakkuk does. He remembers to rejoice and then in rejoicing, he remembers who God is, thus closing the end of Habakkuk. I will rejoice, he says. And when he rejoices in God, he remembers that God is able and good and faithful. And when he remembers that God is able and good and faithful to his promises, guess what? It leads him to rejoice. And there, caught up in this beautiful loop of rejoicing, remembering, rejoicing, is where God's people find their delight in the midst of suffering. Are you there? It's where you'll find the relief and the joy you're looking for. Why? Because in verse 19, God, the Lord, is my strength. He is our strength. He is your strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, and he makes me tread on high places can't suffer to get God's love on your own. You can't save your sin or save yourself from your sin on your own. God is your strength. God is your savior. He's the one doing the work. And when you finally embrace that truth, he will give you deer's feet. Weird, I know, but hear me out. Habakkuk says that he will make my feet like the deer's. And what are deer's feet like? Anybody seen in nature or on TikTok or YouTube or whatever? Little baby deers, what do they do? Frolic, they dance, they jump around. It's like they're filled with energy and joy. Carefree, not a care in the world. They haven't seen Bambi yet. You get to leap. You get to run. They're light. Why? Because... God's grace and love have so captured your life that there's little else that you can do but rejoice God. And here, in the end, is where Habakkuk pulls from the Psalms. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So what is there left to do but to the choir master with stringed instruments? Sing it. Shout it from the rooftops. Preach it over each other, how God is our salvation. In your suffering, don't hope or despair in what you see. Rather, hope in what you have heard, the promises of God. Remember God's faithfulness. Because remembering leads to rejoicing, and rejoicing leads to remembering, all couched in what we desire, which is rest in a weary world 
restoration in a world full of brokenness and righteousness in a dark world full of sin. God is worthy of our praise in suffering because in rejoicing and hearing him, we find rest in him. This is Habakkuk's timeless message for us today. The question is, will we receive it? Praising God in suffering. As we close this book, we want to celebrate the paradox of joy and suffering by participating together as a church, the Lord's Supper. We're literally the shape of the cross on which the Lord Jesus died is an intersection of where joy and suffering met in the body of Christ. And where is God our strength? His salvation comes from. The night before his trial and execution on Golgotha, Jesus in the upper room with his disciples celebrated Passover. He took the bread, he broke it, he told his disciples this, symbolically, is my body broken for you? He took the cup, he blessed it. He called it the cup of the new covenant. He said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the church has, for the past 2,000 years, gathered together to celebrate and to proclaim that despite the suffering we face in this world, we know the one who has suffered the most and has given us forgiveness of sin so that one day, beginning now, we may have eternal life, rest, respite. In an open proclamation to the world that we believe he is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to put an exclamation point at the end of the yes for every promise that God made finalized in him. You'll see that there'll be stations around us to participate in the Lord's Supper today as elders come and deliver those elements to you. We ask that if you are a believer, you would join us in this celebration. But if you are not, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ to refrain from this supper, to ask those around you who have joined them, why? Why participate in this? And as we lead up to participating in this supper, we'll take a moment to reflect on our sins. So allow the Holy Spirit to remind us of sin that we need to confess, to ask forgiveness for that sin and knowing faith alone, it has been paid for in full by Christ, verified to us in full assurance of faith in his resurrection. I'll then pray for us, and as the Holy Spirit leads you, you're invited to come and to participate in the Lord's Supper. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are, good, faithful, able. We recognize and confess to you that we are none of those things. Whether it is through sin we committed, sin done to us, we confess and we lament to you that we live in a broken world. Father, search our hearts. Point out sin we need to confess. And we exchange it now by faith in your son alone for his righteousness, knowing, having nailed it to the cross, it died with him in the tomb. 
and we receive by faith alone eternal life that comes to us through the glorious resurrection of your Son. Father, let us be a people that can rejoice in our salvation despite our circumstances. Despite oppression, despite sin, to know and to be reminded of who you are and to rejoice of what you're doing in our lives and what you have promised yet to do. Father, as we celebrate our Lord's Supper, remind us to rejoice. And in our rejoicing, remind us of you and your promises. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.